This is the Changemaker Forum Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number four of the Changemaker Forum Podcast. My name is Jeremy Brown, founder of Startups Give Back and your host for today's episode. My guest today is Jamie Alexis Fowler. She is the founder and executive director of EmpowerWork. Now, EmpowerWork is a nonprofit that's doing remarkable, remarkable work. If you've ever found yourself in a situation at work where you felt uncomfortable, or maybe you were bullied, or even discriminated against, or maybe you know somebody who has gone through those types of situations, maybe you're uncomfortable going to your HR department to talk about those things. Maybe you're looking for a 100% unbiased opinion and unfiltered unbiased advice if that's the case where do you go who do you talk to that's where empower work comes into play now i don't want to give everything away so sit back buckle up and enjoy the episode jamie alexis welcome to the show thanks for having me absolutely Uh, So before we get into uh, the meat of the podcast, what I would love to do is uh, to take a step back and go back in time pre-Empower Work, and I'd love to learn about who you are, and I know you have an extensive uh, background in in the nonprofit sector, so I'd love to learn about that. Uh, So can you give us a quick little summary of who Jamie Alexis is? Sure. Well, currently I'm the founder and executive director of Empower Work, which we'll get into, I know, in a a few minutes. But as you mentioned, yes, my background is in the nonprofit social change sector. And that really came about um, because many, many years ago at the start of my career, I uh, jokingly referred to myself as a recovering academic. So I left the PhD program pretty early in my career um, because the trajectory to change seemed pretty far off from what I was hoping. Um, And I looked at, you know, how much change I could affect spending eight plus years <laughs> researching in a library, maybe writing a book. Um, and of course, there's a lot of change that comes about through teaching. Um, but I wanted to make a more immediate impact. And so I shifted gears and I thought about, you know, where, what are the skills that I have and where could I apply them? And um, what was I most interested, what was the change that I was most interested in seeing? And so I shifted into working in international reproductive health care. Um, which was a bit of a shift, but most of my academic work had been in international um, relations. So it was a it was a more natural pivot. And a lot of the decision points in my career have been around um, that intersection of what are the skills and abilities that I have and how can I follow the passions and the needs um, that you know I'm seeing or that are being expressed around me in order to to move forward on larger change. Um, and so I've done everything from, build marketing and communications for a hundred million dollar nonprofit organization to international reproductive health organization to uh, most recently starting Empower Work, which is focused domestically on ensuring that everybody in the U.S. has an accessible advocate uh, to navigate their professional journey. Now with that nonprofit background, you know, how did that influence you in terms of you know, there's all types of things, uh, you know, entrepreneurs can start for-profit companies, obviously nonprofit organizations. Uh, But with your background in the nonprofit sector, how did that influence uh, what you wanted to create? Sure. So with Empower Work, it was really driven by, um, entirely by the the need of the folks that we were seeing um, 
didn't have still didn't have access to resources. Um, and so before we started with the business case, before we started with what was the business structure, it was really about what's the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and so early last year, this is early 2017, I was coaching someone through a, a work challenge that they were experiencing. And the person had been connected to me through my larger network. And I reached a point where I really didn't have many suggestions for the person um, and, and wish that I could refer them out to another resource. But there wasn't one that I could think of. And so I started researching and trying to figure out, was there you know, something else that existed that I could refer this person to? They worked in a very small organization that didn't have HR, didn't have any AP, didn't have, um, and then didn't have personally the resources to pay for something like a coach or career services or something like that. Um, and I noticed that there wasn't really anything in the space. So that led me to think about, well, why was that the case? And um, you know, was there a reason that there couldn't be something else? Um, and so from that simple question and that one conversation, I started to pursue a lot of user research that started with a survey that's now had, um, I think, over 180 responses to it, asking about people's experience at work. What do they experience when, do they have, when they have tough situations? Where do they go? What does that look like? Um, and then did in-depth interviews with over 200 people ranging from HR professionals to labor organizers. And of course, most importantly, people who'd had something challenging at work. Um, and in that research saw this huge unmet need. Um, and so before we even got to the point of business structure, it was really what's the problem and how could we address it? So before even um, really launching Empower Work, it started with that survey. That was the, the kind of the foundation of, of Empower Work? Mm-hmm. That was the that was the beginning. Now you know what's interesting with the work that you're doing um, is, especially in Silicon Valley. And I'm sure it's, it's prevalent around the world, but the things that happen within the workplace, uh, especially in in the tech space, is ridiculous. Um, it, it, I've heard some stories that are just absolutely appalling, and you know, I'm curious to hear from you because the point of having an HR department is to ensure that employees have a safe place to go to talk about these problems. But, and you alluded to it, employees aren't necessarily um, comfortable actually going to HR talk, to talk about, you know, certain issues that they're having in the workplace. And, you know, from your perspective, why is that? I'm, I'm wondering if you've heard anything from some of the individuals that you've spoken to over the, over the years. Sure. There's an inherent tension um, in that HR represents both the company and the employee's interests. In a lot of ways, those should be aligned. Um, you know, in, in many cases, that's not the case. Um, and we don't, you know, as an organization, we're not, we're, we remain neutral. In some cases, HR is the best place to go. And, and we, um, when we talk to people, we talk through why or why not they may feel comfortable having a conversation with the HR. In some cases, companies don't have HR, right? Um, and so, you know, in situations where um, we saw this last year, there were a number of um, use cases and user interviews where someone said, you know, look, I'm working for a small, not necessarily in Silicon Valley, this like a small family owned company, right? In a rural part of the US. Like we don't have HR because it's a family run company. There are 20 employees. You know, there, there are a lot of reasons why um, resources may not exist within a company. And there's a vast um, area that's uncovered in terms of, or that's not met in terms of needs, needs being met that are really important. So these gray area issues, whether it's um, 
a challenging interaction with a manager or microaggressions or things that may not have names where you just sort of leave an interaction or a meeting or a situation or you get an email that feels off and you're not really sure how to navigate that. In some cases, there are very discrete um, nameable interactions. You're like, as I know what I just experienced was discrimination or, um, or harassment. Um, but in other cases, it's sort of this squishy like, hmm, I'm not really sure what that was and I'm not really sure what to do about it. And that can feel really disempowering. And so our approach is to provide a space to talk through, um, regardless of if someone has HR or not, we're here to sort of listen, reflect in a confidential anonymous way um, and provide a space to talk through what someone's experiencing. So ultimately, how does it work? So let's say um, you know I'm, I'm having issues um, at my company and I wanna reach out to your organization. Uh, from the user perspective, how does that work? Sure, so it's pretty simple. Anyone can start a text. Um, you just initiate by sending a quick note to our number. It's 510-674-1414. And you can start it however you want, like, hey, is someone there? Hey, I have a work challenge. Um, you agree to our terms of service, which you immediately get once you text in. And then from there, a peer counselor who's trained and a working professional um, connects and has a conversation with you about what you're experiencing. It usually starts with a few background questions to understand um, what it is you're interested in discussing that day and sort of getting some background on, on what's been going on. And then from there, the counselor's trained to sort of talk through that situation, ask questions that help you think about the options that might exist in navigating it. Um, and for some people that concludes with a really significant and awesome action plan. They're like, hey, I know that I'm gonna do X, Y, or Z, whether that's I'm gonna write an email or I'm gonna set up this meeting or I'm gonna figure out my exit strategy. Um, for others, it's it's more of a like, hmm, okay, I figured out I'm gonna take a walk every time I have a, you know, before I have a conversation with my manager. Um, the next step can vary from person to person. And we don't prescribe any particular thing. Everybody's unique, everybody's situation is unique. So it's about tapping into the strength of the person who's contacting us and knowing that they're the best decider um, given their experience and, and their understanding of the situation. And now taking a step back, one question that I, I, uh, I love asking social entrepreneurs um, is this one. Uh, what is one problem you know, as it relates to your experiences as well as your work with Empower Work uh, that you believe is worth solving in the world and why? It's a great question. And of course, in terms of Empower Work's mission, um, I believe one of the most important things that we need to tackle right now is how to better support and empower people at work. We've seen that in headlines, of course, the last year or so. Um, it's been particularly strong in headlines, but it's been happening. Um, negative consequences at work have been happening in all kinds of ways um, for decades, right? And we know that this has many different elements to it um, from the individual to systemic level. And empower work is just one way of coming at that to focus on the individual. Um, but we know that we need larger change. Um, and so I'm really excited about what we offer to provide support that's missing on an individual level. But it's also really, really important that we tie into larger systemic, whether it's organizing, um, whether it's changing cultures within companies, whether it's changing policies or larger um, support structures, we need that change at all different levels. In terms of the changing cultures, you know, that's that's never an easy thing um, in corporate America, unfortunately. I'm wondering, do you have any examples of, um, you know, companies that you've worked with or individuals that you've worked with? Obviously, you don't have to name them um, publicly uh, where, you know, 
through the work that you've, you've done, you you're able to affect or influence some of the change that has happened in, in their culture. Great question. So we ask as, as our in our terms of service, we ask that people not identify um, the companies or individuals associated with their experience. So I can't say that we've had particular companies where it's like, oh, that's great. We've affected larger change um, because for anonymity and confidentiality, we, we ask that that's not shared. Um, I think there are a range of companies that are doing really fantastic things for their employees. Um, and that's awesome um, for companies that are taking that initiative and for and are changing that culture, establishing that culture. That's incredible. And there are too many to name, to be honest. I mean, there are some really fantastic companies to work in. The reality is that most Americans don't work for those. Um, and so when you look at the typical worker experience, um, it's not what might exist in some of the sort of highlighted positive companies. And so really doing this in a larger systemic way is what's really important so that companies, you know, as small as five to 10 people or as you know, large as um, multinational companies can all, you can have a positive experience um, working there regardless of the size or the resources of the company. And switching gears a little bit, um, I'd love to learn uh, more about your experience as a, a social entrepreneur. Uh, so along those lines, what are some lessons that you've learned building Empower Work? I think one important lesson has been uh, really captivating and optimizing on the excitement of people who want to jump in and contribute. We've had this overwhelming and really incredible response since we've, since we've started. And we've had, I think something like over 350 people raise their hand and say like, I want to, you know, I want to be involved, whether it's as an individual um, volunteer, or maybe someone has a particular expertise that they want to bring to bear. And we've figured out lots of different ways to tap people in as advisors, as partners, as, um, as resources, as experts, um, but I would say, you know, capitalizing on that and then really like making sure that that expertise is valued and appreciated and, and um, leveraged in the ways that the person wants it to be is really, really important. Um, it's also time consuming. <laughs> and so there's been this balance of wanting to take advantage of the excitement and the contributions and also recognizing that, you know, sometimes it's important to say, no, or this isn't a fit right now. And, and that's always a, a little bit of a tricky balance. In terms of the cap, uh, capitalizing on the excitement, how did you do that? How did you go about capitalizing on you know the, the folks who were interested in getting involved with you? We try to slot people in in ways that make sense for us and, and make sense for them. And we have also said no, you know, or like, hey, now's not the right time. Um, and so we do that in a couple of different ways. One, we, we obviously have pretty easy ways for people to volunteer as a peer counselor. It's just a quick application process. And then um, they go through a screening process. And then once that uh, screening process and references are checked, go through training and you're a volunteer, which is great. And we have a system for that. Um, in terms of capitalizing on the other excitement, we have um, a sort of champions email list that we use um, for people who are really excited about what we're doing. And we send updates and stories and ways for people to share. Um, we also have an advisor group um, who we regularly check in with in terms of structural questions, operation questions of the organization. Um, and I regularly check in one-on-one -on -one to kind of say like, hey, we'd love to get your expertise in these areas and here are the challenges that we're, that we're facing. Given what you know about X, Y, or Z, you know, I'd love your feedback on, on these particular places. So those are a couple of examples, but I think there's, a, uh, there's room for improvement in all of those. So in the early days, and kind of still staying on that same wavelength of excitement, did you implement these types of things? So like the volunteering and the, um, you know, the, the, the counseling and whatnot 
uh, for people who are interested in getting involved? Is that was that instituted early on, or is that something that happened once you hit a critical mass of interest from from uh, people? That was something that was implemented early on. We knew once we did the initial user research to see where the where the gaps were, um, we identified that you know what people really needed and wanted was something that was immediate, anonymous, accessible, um, and accessible meant largely by text, something that they could do at work and not be overheard. Um, and when we looked at the overall structure of how we could approach that, um, we looked at scenarios where that was staffed by full-time paid coaches, let's say, or other ways. But in terms of our mission, our intent and our goal is really to serve those who are less served, right? And that's why we're a 501c3. It's why we're a nonprofit, because we want to remain free and accessible to anybody. So when we looked at that structure, we looked at how we could affect change on two sides of the equation. One was obviously to provide support for the texture, but the other was to bring in people um, who are interested in using their professional skills in a different way as a volunteer and potentially, and this is something that we tested in the, in the fall, to see if that volunteer experience would both be meaningful in terms of giving back and uh, in, a, in a way that worked for that person, but also to increase the skills um, and professional expertise of our volunteers in a way that they could bring back to their workplaces as well. Um, and so that was part of our original theory of change um, based on our user research. And then we, we tested that over the fall and saw that in fact, that's what was really appealing. We had people who were signing up to volunteer from you know, transit shelter ads that just had our text number. It said nothing about volunteering, yet people would go on the website, see the opportunity to volunteer and say like, yes, I wanna get involved. So that sort of reinforced our theory that this might be something that people were interested in doing. And that was part of the structure from the beginning. That's so smart. So you optimized and you you actually measured success um, in terms of, of determining whether or not that interest actually held any water, correct? That's correct. We do small tests um, to measure sort of theories that we have. We've been doing that since the beginning. I mean, in my mind, I'm a very, I love, I love the Gates blog. I think it, at one point it used to be, I think it was like pragmatic optimist or something. Um, and I think that's, that's very much how I approach things. I'm a complete optimist, but only in a pragmatic way. So we're not going to ever enter into something that doesn't have an understanding of what the use case is behind it. Um, and then of course, like test that out and see, you know, hey, is what we're theorizing something that people would use? Is this something that makes sense? Um, and do really small tests like that along the way. I can tell you have a marketing background. <laughs> yeah, well, I also, you know, I also uh, worked um, for a while with Code for America and a big piece of their approach is sort of user-centered agile development, which is obviously a big part of tech generally. For those who don't know who Code for America is, can you explain what they do? Sure. Code for America is uh, a nonprofit organization that helps um, gov improve government delivery of services through technology. So think about something like signing up for food assistance, making that as easy as possible for someone um, instead of a 140 question written application, turning that into a series of text messages so that someone can get on food assistance. Um, who qualifies more easily, uh, more easily. And you mentioned, um, so uh, EmpowerWork is a 501c3. Um, and whenever I, I talk to uh, social entrepreneurs who do run nonprofits, I always have to ask them the fundraising question. How has your experience been with fundraising? That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, for, for me, the goal around fundraising is to give us 
for philanthropic fundraising, just to give us, and by us I mean Empower Work, the ability to test um, and understand where we can be the biggest value add over the next couple of years. We actually have a couple of different earned revenue models that we want to test and see whether or not they work um, to ensure long-term sustainab uh, long sustainability. Um, and I think, you know, for me, the nonprofit versus for-profit, the piece is always like, where's the revenue going? Our revenue goes back to our mission to ensuring that we remain free and accessible. And we anticipate that that's always going to have some aspect of fundraising to it. You know, whether that's 20% or 40% depends on our earned revenue pieces. Um, I can understand that people sometimes find frustra uh, fundraising frustrating or challenging. You know, for me, I believe in what we're doing and a core piece of whether or not we're going to be successful is to have that, um, the ability to do that testing. And so to bring in that fundraising and to make that case um, for me is exciting and positive, but I know it's not always the case for everybody. Yeah, I have had several conversations with uh, people who are going through that process of, you know, uh, getting grants and whatnot, and they're just they're pulling their hair out. <laughs> so that's why I had to ask you. It can be tough, and and it does, you know, it's one of those things where you have to make decisions like, is this something that's worth spending time on or not, and is this going to achieve the objectives of the organization and and um, where we are right now? And sometimes it's hard to assess that. I know in in the last year or so, we've had people say no to us because we're too early stage. We've also had people say no to us because we're too far along, you know, and so you can kind of say like, okay, it's, you know, yes, and we can be both of those at the same time and may not be a fit for either of those funders. And you just have to say, hey, I know is uh, from a funder is one more piece of information that helps better utilize my time. So the, the earned revenue model uh, concept is really interesting to me. It's something that I don't see a whole lot of nonprofits do, at least um, from the, the organizations that I've spoken to. And it brings up a, a, a story of, uh, so one of my friends, uh, Katia Gomez, uh, she is the executive director of a nonprofit called Educate to Envision. And they do a lot of uh, amazing work in rural Honduras around youth education and youth empowerment uh, to help alleviate the poverty problem. And uh, about, I want to say probably last year, maybe middle of last year, uh, they launched a coffee arm to their organization. They're a 501c3 nonprofit. And so the coffee um, uh, business, if you will, um, is that earned revenue model. Um, and it's actually working out very well for them. And I'm, I'm really surprised that I haven't seen a, a lot more organizations kind of explore that, that concept of having that, uh, that earned revenue model or that uh, that second arm that can generate a recurring revenue for the organization. Yeah, and I think it really depends on the structure and the mission of the organization. I, I don't think earned revenue is necessarily a fit for everybody. Um, and there are some really important missions where there's never going to be an earned revenue model. In the case of what we're doing with Empower Work, we're providing a service. Um, and we have some ways in which we can configure that service that still keeps it free and accessible. But where we also have the ability to um, structure revenue. So I think it's, it really depends on the mission and the focus of the organization as well as the business structure. So knowing what you know now, um, and you're what, a year and some change into Empower Work? Do I have that correct? Not even, yeah. Not even. We actually, <laughs> we launched our pilot in July of last year. Okay, so July of last year to now, what are, so if you had to go back and start completely from scratch, is there anything that you would do differently? At this point, I mean, I think I will say I'll, I'll 
share three things that I think were really effective in terms of some decisions that were made. Um, hindsight is always 2020, so it's easy to say, oh, I wish I could have done this a little bit differently. But I think, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do last year was as soon as we saw that the pilot was um, getting getting traction. So we we launched the pilot. I walked around the streets of San Francisco with eight and a half by 11 flyers, just like taping them up to poles with a text number and the website. And I was like, okay, if somebody uses this, that's one indication of need, <laughs> you know? Um, and within, nobody used it from those posters, but then we started to do little digital tests. And then we ran some um, transit shelters um, that were donated thanks to um, Clear Channel Outdoor, which was amazing. And within six weeks, we had users from 10 different states. Um, and I wanted to immediately leave my job. <laughs> I was like, I see this traction, I'm gonna leave my job. And, you know, and my husband was like, hey, um, you know, we live in San Francisco, we have a three-year-old, um, it takes nonprofits a while to get off the ground. Maybe we should run some personal numbers and see, you know, what this could look like. Um, and the answer was like, I could not leave my job financially. Um, and it probably made more sense for me to continue testing and trying to fundraise and trying to look at that. And I think the tension there was that, you know, I didn't, I didn't have as much time to devote to it as I wanted to, because I was working on it outside of my job and at nights and weekends and, you know, while also being a parent. And I wish that I'd had a little bit more time at the same time, um, doing, providing more personal runway um, meant that we could work on it and test it longer um, without funding. And so that's not, you know, it's tough to get a nonprofit off the ground, um, mm -hmm. particularly when you're bootstrapping it. And that for me was a really important consideration in terms of time and energy and funding. Uh, and I'm glad that, I'm glad that I waited um, to leave my job, but um, it also, it created some tensions because I wanted to spend more time on it, of course. Yeah, I completely agree. Getting a nonprofit off the ground and actually scaling it. I, and I argue, I will argue to the day I die, <laughs> it is harder to do that than it is to scale a for-profit company. Every every nonprofit um, professional and social entrepreneur that I've spoken to, they agree. It is absolutely hard. Um, and, you know, it, I admire people who stick to it and grow it uh, because it's absolutely, it, it's, it takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot. There's also a lot of reward. Um, I think that the, the personal trade-off, of course, is that I think for, for folks who are um, bootstrapping or getting something off the ground that's on the for-profit side, there's a potential for personal financial return, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a, both an incentive and an excitement. Um, there's also risk associated too. Um, I think getting a social enterprise off the ground, um, there's, there's a little bit more of that um, personal financing that's a bit more challenging. And of course, this impacts um, particularly those who have fewer resources even more, you know, and I think that um, that's a discussion that's being had in the philanthropic world overall, but around particularly female founders, um, female founders of color, uh, that there's less capital available. In some cases, there's new research out about that. Um, and so it is, it's a, it's a bigger risk that happens, obviously, in the for-profit sector as well, but in the nonprofit sector. And um, it's important that for founders and social entrepreneurs that, you know, the ability to pay your bills and feed yourself is just as important um, as the mission. The mission can't happen if you're not taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Where does Empower Award go from here? Is there anything in the in the pipeline uh, that you're excited about and that you can share publicly? Sure. Well, I'm really excited to share that we were just accepted to the Fast Forwards Accelerator. So we're going to be um, kicking that off in a couple of weeks, um, which will be really fantastic. Um, and I think we're you know, we're at a particularly awesome inflection point where we've tested a lot, we've learned a lot 
over the past year. And now we can um, start to grow and scale that in really substantial ways. And so um, from things like fast forward to, um, to thinking about the second half of 2018 and some really fantastic national partnerships that we're up, we know that we're going to be more folks, more folks who are um, less and less served, um, which is really important. Um, and and to really ensure that more people have access to our text or web chat. That's amazing. Fast Forward is an awesome organization, so congratulations on that. Thanks. We're really excited. The last question for you: Where can people learn more about you as well as EmpowerWork? Uh, EmpowerWork is pretty easy to find. Our website is empowerwork.org. So empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-W-O-R-K.org. Um, and then of course, for those who are listening to this thinking like, oh, I'm, I just had something tough at work. Our text line is 510-674-1414. To learn about me, I'm on the website as well. <laughs> so you can, you can check me out there. Um, I'm also at, at, on Twitter at Jamie Alexis, J-A-I-M-E. A-L-E-X-I-S. And yes, that's my first name because I'm from Texas. <laughs> Jamie Alexis, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This is an amazing episode. I learned a lot and I'm sure everyone who's listening in will learn a lot too. Oh, thanks so much, Jeremy. I appreciate the time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Changemaker Forum podcast. I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you did, it would be amazing if you shared it on your favorite social network, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or something else. So with that being said, stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>